Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm producer Jack Glover. We hope you're enjoying season seven and we have plenty of exciting episodes and new stories still to come. Today's episode is a bit of a favourite from our archives and a nod to a mini-series we released a little while ago called 125 Treasures, which accompanied a National Trust book by the same name. If you've not heard it before, in this episode, called The Horse on the Staircase, we delve into the world of horse racing and uncover this treasure's hidden criticism of its owner. The podcast is episode two of the series and is presented by Alison Stedman. Less than 20 miles from the centre of Belfast lies Strangford Lock, the largest sea lake in the British Isles. As you turn your back on the lock and enter the Mount Stewart estate, the scents hit you all at once. Curry, eucalyptus and the sweet smell of candy floss tickle your nostrils as you wind your way through the labyrinth of garden rooms, temples, lakes and woodland until you're finally confronted with the jewel in the crown of the estate. Mount Stewart House, a sprawling Georgian mansion and the resting place of a controversial treasure steeped in the world of high-stakes gambling and thoroughbred racing. I'm Alison Stedman and this is 125 Treasures, a podcast from the National Trust. Episode 2, The Horse on the Stairs. My name is Frances Bailey, and I'm the Senior National Curator for the National Trust in Northern Ireland. The house is two storeys high, built of a very dark rubble stone. The great entrance door is in front of me, being opened. I go under the portico into the entrance hall. Very welcoming and comfortable. On cold winter days, the fire is lit. Green walls and a green ceiling. Unusual, but very effective. And lovely sort of comfortable furniture set around the place. Mount Stewart House has been the home of the Stewart family, the Marquesses of Londonderry, for over 250 years. It started life as a relatively modest building, but was transformed into the imposingly grand mansion it is today in the early 19th century, largely thanks to the heiress Lady Frances Anne Vane Tempest, who married its owner, Charles, the third Marquess of Londonderry, in 1819. There are glass doors on one side of the entrance hall, opening those now. moving through a little passageway and into the central hall. It's an entirely different space. A big octagon in the centre, double height, with a great flat skylight above it, pouring light down into the central space. Columns and pilasters all around painted a beautiful, deep, greeny blue set out against the stony colour of the walls. Frances Anne had inherited her vast fortune from her father, Sir Henry Vane Tempest, a politician and landowner 
who had a reputation as a heavy drinker and a gambler. His daughter had more refined tastes, as can be seen throughout the house. In the central hall, there are four apses with sculptures in them. And one of them is Frances Anne, Vain Tempest. And here she is uh, in classical garb with her eldest son. Well, I'm leaving behind the great central hall and moving through these great mahogany doors into the earlier part of the house, built in about 1803. And turning back on myself, I find myself at the foot of the great staircase. I'm just going up the stairs to the half landing and actually all I can see is, is the hooves of the animal, the grass in the foreground. It measures about six foot by 12 and it practically fills the wall of that half landing over the staircase. You have to really stand back from it to understand what the painting is about. It's called Hamiltonian Rubbing Down. For me, Hamiltonian Rubbing Down is one of the greatest works by one of the greatest British painters. And it's, I would think, one of the greatest paintings in Northern Ireland, certainly within the National Trust properties. But it's the force of its, its composition and its story and the emotion behind it that, for me, really makes it a masterpiece. The painting story begins with Francis Anne's father, the infamous Sir Henry Vane Tempest, a man known for his high living and his love of betting. And at Newmarket Races on March the 25th, 1799, Henry landed the biggest win of his life. Newmarket on the borders of Cambridgeshire and Suffolk, and it's, it's quite a small town. Mike Huggins is Professor of Cultural History at the University of Cumbria and author of Horse Racing and British Society in the Long 18th Century. It wouldn't be expected, really, to have a race meeting in terms of its size, but it's got the, by far the highest status in terms of racing because of the people it attracts. So more and more of Newmarket is occupied by ancillary things for racing. You know, it's, it's smiths, it's harness makers, it's, it's breeders, all those other jobs are taking place in Newmarket. From that point of view, it's the centre of racing in England at that time. In terms of sport, racing held the leading position, uh, far more important than things like boxing or cockfighting or, or any of the many sports that were flourishing at the time. If you imagine the cup final or in, in football or any of those things today, it had a bigger position than any of those. Race day was a huge social event where people of all classes mingled, dances were held and tents were set up selling food, drink and even sex. It also involved a great deal of high-stakes gambling. Betting and gambling holds a unique place in Georgian society because it's a thing that 
a lot of people do in different ways. Uh, even the middling classes would uh, play cards and invite folk round to play cards together for small stakes. And for the elite, it was a mark of status and position. For the rich, gambling conveyed the idea that you were not risk-averse. It affirmed your aristocratic status, showing that you weren't bogged down in the tiresome nitty-gritty of everyday life. The atmosphere on race day is one which is, by and large, highly masculine, because, by and large, the people who go there are these high-status players who are wagering and betting and drinking and gambling in the coffee house for cards and dice as well. Newmarket is attractive for this racing elite who have the best horses, the thoroughbreds, the most expensive horses, they make the most extravagant wages. And for them, a lot of the fun isn't in a race where several horses compete. About half the races at Newmarket are what they call matches, where two men agree together to race their horses against each other for a specific amount. Another folk will bet on it, but the two individuals stake an amount. One is going to lose, one is going to win. And it was just such high-profile match-ups that attracted men like Sir Henry Vane Tempest. He didn't start off rich. When he's born in 1771, he's not that well off. But his relatives are, and bit by bit, he inherits very large estates in the, in the north. He gets coal, coal mines in County Durham. He is a very, very rich man. You'd see him as a multimillionaire nowadays. He has money to burn. He's become MP for Durham, but he's also a gambler. He's rash at times. He's quarrelsome. He's argumentative. He is not well liked, but it doesn't matter. Why should it matter? He's got plenty of money. He can afford to be disliked. Because of his racing, he becomes a member of the jockey club and he's, and he's making more and more matches, not just at high-status places like York, but also down at Newmarket. The jockey club still exists today as the body that runs horse racing. In Georgian times, it was an elite organisation of exclusively male landowners and MPs who, as the name suggests, ran the sport like a private club. They were out in full force at Newmarket that day to witness one of the greatest match-ups of the age. The match itself is between Sir Henry Vane Tempest's horse, Hamiltonian, and Joseph Cookson's horse, Diamond. But the match itself is set up. The stakes are made the previous year in August at York Races. And each of them put 3,000 guineas on the match. Interest is generated almost immediately because of the size of the wager. It's a big wager. It's a very, very big wager. A few years earlier, Henry had decided he wanted to take his obsession with racing to the next level. He purchased Hambletonian, the grandson of two superstar racehorses, High Flyer and Eclipse. Today, 95% of thoroughbreds can still trace their lineage back to Eclipse. The race was a classic North versus South encounter. Diamond was the pride of the South, while Yorkshire-born Hambletonian represented the North. 
And of course, the amount of interest in this race means that there's lots of public interest in the race itself. Everyone's reading about it, the papers are full of it, and everyone wants to know what the result's going to be. The crowds descended en masse. There were so many folk wanted to see the actual match that, first of all, all the accommodation in Newmarket disappeared very quickly. Every single coach was booked for weeks before, so the crowds would have been very large. Everyone wanted to see it. The race attracted feverish expectation as to which horse would triumph. Hambletonian had only ever lost one race, but was only the narrow favourite. The race was four miles, so it went right out into the country, so people wouldn't be able to see the start unless they rode out to see the start. As the starter lowered his flag, the horses raced off, with the spectators who'd ridden out to see the start riding along behind them. And the race starts, and they're both competing from the onset. But it was only in the last four furlongs, which is half a mile from the finish, when they really started to fight, and they were both fighting like mad. Both jockeys were doing everything they could to get over the line. Buckle on Hambletonian, Dennis Fitzpatrick on Diamond, and they were both doing everything they could to win. Then finally, in the last few strides, Hambletonian inches ahead and wins by a neck. Everyone's going mad there. All the crowds around are going mad. Some are cheering, some are cursing. And no one was more ecstatic than Sir Henry Vane Tempest. But as this was a match, not a race, there was no gold cup at the end, no trophy to show off. So Henry decided to commission two paintings from the great animal painter of the 1700s, George Stubbs. Stubbs had previously worked for some of the wealthiest families in the land, like the third Duke of Richmond and the second Marquess of Rockingham. It made sense to commission Stubbs to paint one or two pictures for Vane Tempest then to be able to display. So when you have your house party, when guests come and you walk into the, the hall or the dining room or the library, you've got your painting that shows your horse, the winner of a big race. And the horse, he's a symbol of your status, your power, your wealth, your position, your ability to own the equivalent of a Maserati or a Ferrari of the time. This is a, a top horse, just like you'd have a top car or a top yacht nowadays. Henry commissioned Stubbs to paint two pictures of Hamiltonian following his victory against Diamond. Um, and we're told that one would represent Hamiltonian winning the race and will be a remarkable fine likeness of the horse and of Buckle the rider. And the other will represent the horse rubbing down after the race and is as large as life. And Vane Tempest actually advertised this and said that um, there were going to be prints made of these paintings and they were going to be sold. So it was both a way of advertising the brilliance of his horse and also raising some cash. In fact, the prints were never done. Henry's plan to make more money may have failed, but Stubbs managed to produce an artistic work of lasting significance. 
Hamiltonian rubbing down was painted at the very end of his career. And in many ways, it sort of encapsulates everything that his career was building up to. George Stubbs was one of the great animal painters, especially horse painters of the 18th century. He was born in 1724, the son of a courier, a leather curer, a leather dresser in Liverpool. And he was largely self-taught. He, he decided that he wanted to be a painter, and he announced this to his father, um, who was a bit dismayed, I think. But he persisted. And he became particularly interested in anatomy, in how bodies worked, whether they were human bodies or animal bodies. In 1744, age 20, Stubbs' driving ambition led him to study anatomy at York County Hospital. What may have attracted Henry to the work of George Stubbs was the anatomical accuracy of his paintings. He then started to look at the anatomy of horses. And during the 1750s, he spent about 18 months studying uh, the carcasses of horses, which he would rig up in a, a, a barn in a, in a farmhouse um, uh, where he was living for the time. Um, and over a period of weeks, he would sort of dismantle a horse carcass, so take away layer by layer and make the most extraordinary detailed drawings of what he found. And these amazing drawings were to be incredibly influential. What he really wanted to understand was how horses worked and to be able to paint them better. In 1766, Stubbs published The Anatomy of the Horse. Its detailed descriptions and illustrations of the equine body were an immediate success with artists, anatomists, veterinarians and horse lovers. It became the work of reference for all those working in the field of equine anatomy. Fast forward some 30 years and Stubbs is still fascinated by horses, toiling away at the paintings Henry Vane Tempest had commissioned of Hambletonian. In 1800, the painting was presented to Henry. Looking at this painting, what, what do I see? The overwhelming presence in the painting is a great racehorse. And the scene shows him being rubbed down. The horse is absolutely in the, in the front register of the painting. It's as though we could almost reach out and touch him. And I love the fact also that Hamiltonian, being so full in the frame of the painting, the landscape is, is behind and below him. So you look under his, his legs, under his stomach, to see... Newmarket Racecourse to see the Rubbing Down House and the, the viewing gallery. And it's as though he's become a sort of colossus, a great sort of god striding across Newmarket Heath. He is completely dominating that. His ears are laid back. His eyes are staring. His nostrils are flared. And he's a fantastic horse in terms of his anatomy, the gleam of his coat the power of his muscles, very beautifully depicted. Stubbs chose to paint the rubbing down painting first, and not the one of Hambletonian actually winning, the one that Vane Tempest could have proudly shown off, his version of a gold cup. But Stubbs wasn't interested in the spectacle of race day. He was interested in the animals themselves, 
their personalities and their stories. When Henry Vane Tempest watched the race at Newmarket, he saw a tale of a triumphant win, worthy of celebration. But Stubbs saw something completely different. And the race starts, and they're both competing from the onset. But it was only in the last four furlongs, which is half a mile from the finish, when they really started to fight, and they were both fighting like mad. Just yards from the finish line, it's still neck and neck between Hambletonian and Diamond. The race is too close to call. Both jockeys were doing everything they could to get over the line. Buckle on Hambletonian, Dennis Fitzpatrick on Diamond, and they were both doing everything they could to win. Then finally, in the last few strides, Hambletonian inches ahead and wins by a neck. Instead of Hambletonian's triumphant win in front of cheering crowds, in Stubbs' painting, we see the horse behind the scenes, suffering after running a long and hard race. In those days, everything you can do to win means heavy spurring, heavy whipping. Both sides of both horses would be severely damaged. A writer for the sporting magazine at the time commented... Both horses were very much cut with the whip and severely goaded with the spur, but particularly Hambletonian, he was shockingly goaded. There was no need to whip or spur a horse. The problem was that sometimes these finishes were very close and both riders really needed to win. Now, when both riders really needed to win, anything went. And that was not seen as bad by most people at the time. There was an early animal rights group, but it was marginal in society. At that time, gamblers would have expected the jockey to do whatever had to be done. And the horse was almost immaterial. The horse was the horse. The bet was the bet. And the bet was more important than the horse. Stubbs is at pains to capture the physical toil Hambletonian has just been through. Interestingly, Stubbs has chosen not to show the marks of the spurs or the whip, but it's his the, the flatness of his neck. He's not standing there with his head up. He's drained and his head is down and he's gasping for breath. His mouth is open. His eyes are wide. His ears are back. He's not a happy horse. And you can see that, you can see that agitation. So this is the embodiment of the horse as a sentient being. The horse with feelings, with emotions, who works brilliantly with people, but who sometimes people abuse. And what comes across for me is, is Stubbs's empathy for this fantastic beast for this very sensitive, emotional animal that has tried its hardest, has done its best, has won an enormous race, has put everything into it, and actually all the honour is due to him, not to the owner. We don't know exactly what Sir Henry thought when he saw the painting, but we get the impression that he was pretty angry. There's been quite a bit of speculation as to why Sir Henry Vane Tempest was not happy and was not prepared to pay for the painting when it was finished. 
and something went badly wrong and nobody quite knows what it was. But Stubbs, who was owed 300 guineas for the paintings, had to take Vane Tempest to court to get the money. And the really frustrating thing is that the court records don't survive. So we don't know what the arguments were on both sides. So there's uncertainty about precisely what Henry Vane Tempest didn't like about Hambletonian rubbing down. He did eventually pay for it. But the second painting has disappeared, if it was ever finished. And it would be wonderful if somebody could find that in their attic. I believe this painting deserves to be one of our National Trust 125 treasures because it encapsulates in so many ways what we're about. It's about people, about relationships. It's about the countryside and rural sports. But more than anything, it's a brilliant painting and it's exceptional in its portrayal of this amazing racehorse And the way in which he has portrayed Hamiltonian in this particular situation is so emotionally engaging that, for me, that is the real treasure of this painting. Thank you for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. To find more episodes and to find our mini-series, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts, or you can search for National Trust in your favourite podcast app. We've also included a few links about 125 treasures and other National Trust books, which you can find in our show notes. We'll be back soon with a new episode, but for now, from me, Jack Lover, goodbye. Goodbye.